Welcome in, my friend. We are now in our second session, working our way through the book of Job. And as you can see, we're still in this first section here, which presents forth the dilemma. And last time, we just got our foot in the door a little bit as we were introduced to this man, Job. And we saw that Job was a great man, and he served God. And Job was very blessed. He had ten children, seven sons, and three daughters. Now, I don't know how much of a blessing you might consider that to be today. It sounds pretty expensive. But Job could afford it. He was a very wealthy man. He's the John D. Rockefeller of his day. And we were introduced to him last time, and we saw a glimpse of the problem that God will try to get at in this man. You remember he acted as the high priest of his family, offering sacrifices for his sons and daughters, but not for himself. He didn't think that he needed a sacrifice, and God is going to address that. Now today we have the curtain pulled back, and we get a look behind the scenes at what really brought the trouble about in Job's life. And we'll be putting in at verse 6 of chapter 1. And as you find your place to follow along with us, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, teach all of us now the mysteries of your ways as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now we know Job, and that scene ends, and our next scene opens in heaven. And what a scene this is, my beloved. This is something that Job was totally unaware of. And in fact, nobody in the book of Job knows that this takes place. And this enables us to understand and interpret some of the things that happen to God's people today. Now, I don't think it's the total explanation, but it's definitely part of it. Notice, verse 6, chapter 1 of Job. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, this is a scene in heaven, and there comes before God now the sons of God, his created intelligences. And I have to say, I really don't know very much about them. To begin with, I do think that they're numberless, just as numberless as the sand on the seashore. You and I simply couldn't count them. But these are not human beings, I do know that. They don't belong to our race. They're sort of like the Valar and the Maiar, if you can get the Tolkien reference. These are God's created intelligences, and they're responsible creatures. They're responsible. They have to come and report to God as a matter of regular routine. And I suppose that we would expect that, but now there's something else here that's rather shocking. We're told, and Satan came also among them. Now that's shocking. Verse 7, The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Now by the way, Satan also has to make a report, as we see here. Now that is amazing, my friend, is it not? And you say, well, I guess he came from hell, right? No, he didn't. My friend, hell hasn't been opened up yet. And today, it's not open for business just yet. 
It's going to be, but it's not actually opened up until after the millennium takes place on this earth. Revelation tells us that. There will be the judgment of the great white throne, and hell is a place prepared for the devil and his angels, but they're not there yet. The fact of the matter is, he has as much access to this earth as you and I have, even more so, in fact. We're told that he came and he made this report from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The devil has access to this earth, and he has access to heaven even. He has to go and report to God. But apparently his domain is on this earth. It's where he was reporting from. So instead of being in hell, he's on this earth. He goes up and down, north, south, east, and west. And that's another one of his names, by the way. Satan is called the god of this world. And he's called the prince of the power of the air. And we're told that he roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So that he has great access and freedom on the earth today. And Peter gave us a warning over in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And my friend, this is a warning, and this is exactly what the book of Job says. Satan himself says it here. He's got the freedom to go up and down the earth. And you'll recall that he offered the Lord Jesus the kingdoms of this earth. He said he could give them to whoever he wished. And the Lord Jesus, did you notice, he never told him, you don't have them to offer. He just turned him down. And apparently Satan has a certain amount of freedom in this world. And when you look at the world today, it does kind of look like he's running things, does it not? Now, we know that God is in control, but it does look as though the devil is running things on this earth today. And we're shown in scripture that this is a world that you and I live in today that is actually controlled by Satan, and he has to be overcome. And we can only overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, my beloved. Now, this is quite a revelation, is it not? And it sure is quite contrary to modern thinking. But Job's life here is about to be caught up in heavenly strategies, as what we see here is God holding counsel in his heavenly court. And neither Job nor his friends nor his family ever knew anything about this. And we see that Satan, emboldened by the success that he's had with Adam in paradise, he's now confident that the fear of God that Job has, that of a fallen race, it would not stand up to his tests. And let's get a little bit of a background on Satan before we move on, shall we? We know that he himself has fallen. We find in Isaiah 14, verse 12, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Now, what that means is that he's fallen from his high position. He still has access to heaven as we've seen, and he still reports to God. Now one day he will lose access to heaven and be confined only to the earth, and then eventually he'll be thrown into the lake of fire. But for now, he's fallen to a lower position in God's court. And actually, as opposed to a personal name, the word Satan is a title that means adversary in either a personal or a judicial sense. And this evil angel is the ultimate spiritual adversary of all time. 
and he has been accusing the righteous throughout the ages. Now one day God's going to get sick of his accusations and he's going to say, that's enough of that. He's going to kick him out of heaven finally once and for all. And the scripture says in Revelation 12 verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And that's going to happen someday. Praise God. Now, in a courtroom setting, the adversary usually stood to the right of the accused. And this is the location reported to be where Satan stands to accuse. We find in Zechariah verse 3, sorry, uh, Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right to accuse him. And if you read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, and we're only going to lift out a couple of verses here, but Paul's thesis in that section is that Satan is unsuccessful when he accuses you and me and every believer. Why? Well, because we're protected. We have a mediator with God the Father. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, we see here in Job, first of all, that God is the one in charge. He initiates the dialogue. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And we're going to follow the dialogue, and we're going to see the accusation of Job. That accusation is this. Does Job serve God with pure motives? Or is he only in it as long as the blessings flow? Now notice the next verse, verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Now, God makes a good report of Job. He says, this man is outstanding. And evidently, Satan had been trying to get at him. And the reason I think that we can infer that, notice what Satan answers the Lord. Then Satan answered the Lord, this is verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Now, apparently, this creature had been trying to get through to Job. And he discovered that he couldn't get through to him because there was a hedge around him. And Satan then casts a slur on mankind. I think he despises mankind. And he suggests that Job only has a fair-weather faith, that he's only a time server. Listen to this. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job serve God for naught? Verse 10. Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. You put a hedge around him and I can't touch him. And I believe that there is a hedge around every believer today. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, my friend, I don't think Satan can get through to you unless God permits it. But if God permits it, it will be for a purpose. And that's something that this book teaches, by the way. Now the thing is, Satan casts now this slur upon him. He says, verse 11, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, 
and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, that's quite an accusation, is it not? You see, Satan has no use for Job. And frankly, he has no use for you or me today, beloved. He says that you and I are time servers. And if God took down that hedge and took everything away from us, we would curse God. And a lot of them would, by the way. There's no question about that. And you have to listen to it, but if you keep your ears open, you'll hear God cursed nearly every day. I remember a few years ago, I was a college student out in Southern California, and one summer, next to my apartment building, there was another building being rebuilt. And I went by one day, and one of the foremen, he was attempting to make some sort of adjustment in something that he was doing, but he didn't stabilize the wood quite right, and these long two-by-fours came crashing down. And oh my, he began to curse God. I'll tell you, I don't know. That man may go to church on Sundays. He may carry a big Bible. I just don't know. But I do know this. He cursed God. And you hear that constantly today. Men are not rightly related to God, my friend. Anything but, in fact. And this man, Job, he had a hedge around him, and Satan couldn't touch him. And Satan says, well, I'd like to get to him. And he hates mankind. Why in the world would you want to serve Satan? I don't know. He despises us. I wouldn't want a master like that. I'd rather serve a master that loves me and would be sympathetic to me. And that's the kind of a master Jesus is. Now, will you notice we're told here, verse 12, Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now let me tell you, sometimes God permits Satan to take away from us these things that we lean on. I know that when our little blanket is taken away from us, that many of us, we just feel so helpless and incapable and lost in the world. And many of us cry out to God. Now notice, God is going to permit Satan to take from this man Job his possessions. But he says, don't touch him. You can destroy Job's possessions, but you can't put a hand on Job. Now again, in verse 13, the scene shifts. The scene in heaven concludes, and we turn now to a scene down on the earth. Notice this, verse 13. Now on the day when his sons and the daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house... Now, they were just having a high old time, my friend. They're going around from one brother's house first, and then they're going to another. They had a banquet every day, living it up. They're living in the lap of luxury, taking it easy. Well, then what happened? Verse 14. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now here, Job has been having it nicely, and he didn't know that he had enemies like this. But the Sabaeans come in, and they slay his cattle and his donkeys. Verse 16, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And do you notice the messenger describes it here as the fire of God? 
they were blaming God for the disaster. And that is the pattern of mankind throughout history. In the insurance policies, for instance, they have written that you're protected if your house is burned down by an act of God. See, we always blame God if something is destroyed. And way back even in Job's day, they were saying that. The fire of God fell, this messenger tells him. But wait a minute, who did it? Satan did it. I don't know why the insurance policies don't offer protection from an act of Satan. If God permits it and Satan gets through to me and my house gets burned up, well, I can't blame God. The insurance policy ought to say, you're covered if Satan destroys your house. And this is what happened to Job's sheep and his cattle and his donkeys. Now we're told, verse 17, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. You talk about the crash of the stock market. This is real live stock. And now it's gone. Totally wiped out. Verse 18. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now this is a terrible tragedy now, beyond tragedy. All of Job's children were having their daily banquet, and a Texas-sized tornado slammed into the house of the eldest brother. The text says a great wind came across the wilderness. And this shows us that Satan is able to exercise control over certain aspects of nature. He seems to at least be able to manipulate the weather to cause natural disasters. He blows a mighty wind that destroys this house and destroys all of Job's children in it. And we find in Luke chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, when the Lord Jesus Christ was on this earth, you remember a fierce gale of wind came across the Sea of Galilee. And I believe that Satan, Satan sent that fierce wind in an attempt to kill our Lord before the cross so that his work would not be accomplished. But Jesus quieted that storm. But that storm was supernatural. Supernatural from the evil one. And so was this one that killed all of Job's children. But Job didn't know what the reason was for any of all this at all. What would you do in a case like this? Now I want you to notice what Job does. Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshipped. Notice this man. Listen to him now. Verse 21. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. You know, Job had a viewpoint and a philosophy of life that I think Christians need today towards material things. And that is this, you and I, we came into this world with nothing. We were naked as a jaybird when we came into this world. And my friend, we're going to leave this world the same way. Years ago, when one of the Vanderbilts died, or, I don't know, possibly the Rockefellers, I just don't know. It was some wealthy family. 
they were all waiting for the lawyer to come out. So when he came out, he announced to all the relatives that the patriarch had died. And immediately, one of the relatives, one of the more greedy ones, he says, well, how much did he leave? And the lawyer says, he left it all. He didn't take anything with him. That's the way that you came into the world, and that's the way that you're going out, my friend. I don't care how much property you own. I don't care how strong your safe deposit box is. I don't care about your portfolio or how much you accumulate, your cash flow, how much ins insurance you have. When you go, you're going just like you came into the world. There's no pockets in a shroud. So it's very important to have a philosophy of life where you know that fact. You may be living in a half a million dollar home. You may be living in a Hubble. You may have a big bank account. You might not even have a bank account at all. You might have a safe deposit box filled with gold and diamonds. You may not know what a safe deposit box is. It doesn't make any difference who you are. You will leave the world the same way you came into it. So whatever you've got, well, you're really just a steward of it, aren't you? It's not really yours, is it? Not when you look at the final analysis of things. This man Job, he falls down here and he worships God. He tore his robe, he shaved his head, and you probably could have heard this man weeping from a mile away. He's lost everything and he's even lost his sons and his daughters. But listen to him, he says, the Lord gave. And my friend, whatever you've got, God gave it to you. And may I say, if he took it away, then he took it away. And he will hold you responsible and me responsible for how we use things. And that's the reason why over in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls us stewards. We're stewards. And a steward handles what belongs to somebody else. God's going to ask you how you used everything he gave you, material or otherwise. In other words, everything down here is his. You're just using them. And when you leave, you won't be taking them with you. So it's how you use what you got down here. And we're told through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And if you notice... Go back to the beginning of this. Job heard the first two messages calmly. But when he heard about the death of his children, he expresses all the symbols of grief. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. Those are biblical signs of grief. We see in Genesis 37, Jacob tore his clothes when he thought that Joseph was dead. And in Jeremiah 41, there's a group of men that tear their clothes and shave their heads when Gedaliah is murdered. And those are just a couple of examples of this. There are several of others. Uh, we have seven of them listed out, actually. actually. We encourage you to follow them through the scriptures to see when this sort of thing was done and what was the purpose of it. But now, here with Job, instead of cursing through his grief, Job worshipped God, and he blessed the name of the Lord. Job's submissive response proved Satan wrong by Job's actions. So far, Job was everything that God said he was. Job was a true believer with faith that could not be broken, and he did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. You see, 
when a person speaks hasty words against God in the middle of their grief, we find out here that that's foolish and sinful. Christians are to endure trials in submission, still worshiping God. And it's not because we see the reason for our trials, but we do understand that they're God's will, and we are to trust that he has a purpose in them. Now, this man did not lose faith. This man is still holding on to God. And now the scene changes back to heaven as we come to chapter 2. Well, you notice this. Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. See, they all have to report to God. And you and I are going to have to report to him someday. And again, let me say, at the judgment seat of Christ, you and I are going to have to report on our stewardship down here. That's where Christians come. That's not the white throne judgment. And we're going to give an account. And here the creatures of God come and they have to make a report. Why do we have to report? He's God, my friend. You're not God and you're not operating freely today. Everybody says, I want liberty. Well, let's think about this. How much liberty do you have? A grasshopper can jump higher than you can jump according to his size. If you could jump like a grasshopper, you could jump over the tallest building in the world today, but you can't do it. So what about your liberty? May I say to you, you are a creature of God, and you're going to have to answer to him. And here... They're all turning in their report. Even Satan had to come. He's not beyond that. And Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. Interesting, isn't it? God asks him, where have you come from? See, he has to report. God already knows the answer. But he has to make a report, and he has to tell the Lord. And he says, from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. He says, I've been down here at my playground. I'm running that place down there. And I think he's still running it. Sure looks like it when you, I look around me in the world today. Verse 3, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now, let's understand what happened to Job happened without a cause. And somebody always says, why does God let this happen to me? You know, it may be the Lord will say, well, there really was no reason for it. There's actually no reason at all. I wasn't whipping you. I wasn't punishing you. I was just bringing you up to a little bit higher level. And that's what he did with Job. But it was without a cause. And sometimes today we point our finger at a believer and we say, Oh, God's punishing him. Well, maybe he's not. He might be testing that person in a way that he just couldn't test you or me because we wouldn't pass. He couldn't trust us with the trouble. And quite frankly, I would never want to go through what Job went through. Now, we're going to have to leave off there for this time. 
but we'll pick it right up where we left off next time. I would encourage you to go back and reread Job chapter 1, read forward through the end of Job chapter 2 so that you can review what we've covered, get an idea of what we'll be looking at next time, and of course come to your own conclusions. And Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. See you later.